You. Do you hate ads interrupting your podcasts? We do too. That's why we're trying to keep ads away from Hot Rods of the Sky. The best way for us to do that is for you to go to merch.hotrodspodcast.com right now and purchase some exclusive Hot Rods of the Sky merchandise. Doesn't matter if you purchase a sticker, a hoodie, or a phone case. Anything you purchase goes directly back into the show and helps us fund this without you having to listen to ads that you don't care about. That link, once again, is merch.hotrodspodcast.com. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. This is Kevin. This is Callum. And this is Katie. And you are listening to Episode 7 of Hot Rods of the Sky. Hi, everybody, and thanks so much for listening. Uh, Tonight, we are going to be discussing a little bit more of the GBZ, and we have a very special guest with us, and his name is Delmar Benjamin. Delmar, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. Um, Obviously, you are here because you have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the most hours in, you know, GBs ever out of anybody. Is that right? Yes, I believe so. I've got about 1,500 hours in the R2, plus I've flown most of the other GBs. And you also did the first flight of the GBZ, correct? I did. Ah. (laughs) Uh, So tonight we are going to talk about, take a nice trip down memory lane. Uh, Delmar and Dad are going to chat about how they met and why Delmar was a little bit of a catalyst to the GBZ project. Um, and I'm just going to let them go at it. So go ahead, guys. <laughs> <clears throat> well, thanks for coming on tonight with us, uh, or today, Delmar. That's great. I uh, appreciate it. Um, you know, when when we saw you fly the R2 at Sun and Fun that first year when you came down, Jeff and I, you know, saw that. And we're, we were pretty inspired, but we weren't necessarily inspired to build a GB. Um, you know, we were, we were inspired to build something cool that maybe we would have built or had if had we been alive in that era something like that and we had a couple ideas of what to do and guys like Jim Yonkin and others kind of poo-pooed those ideas and and then um, a GBZ project came available for sale that we bought that was junk but it kind of got us stuck on the project and then the following year um, when you were back at Sun and Fun we met again and I showed you a little bit of the stuff that we were doing and I think that's when we when we started discussing in a little bit more detail. Yes, I remember that. And it was, um, I think that was, what was the first year that you were down at, at Sun and Phone? Was that 91 or 92? 92 probably. Okay. 92. And then, so the second the second trip would have been 93. So it would have had, um, yes. Callan would have been all of like two years old. At that point, and almost, almost two, yeah, yeah. and uh, no Katie, no Katie, yeah, son of one. at that point. But um, yeah, we can call that the dark okay. ages days right. without Katie. That's what we'll call it. Yeah, <laughs> BC. Yeah, BC, BK before yeah. Katie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, and then we we um, we kind of got started into it, and and. Um, you know, we're lucky to, to have you and Steve Wolf as as friends and guys who blaze the trail in front of us because 
you guys had insights that, that really helped us out a lot as we were going through the project. When, when you, um, let's just, let's just kind of go back and, and kind of tell us a little bit about how, um, yeah, how you got to the point of, of building and flying the R2. Where did that come from? Well, actually, I was a big fan of the the Z model after um, Turner built that replica. I was pretty jacked up about building one of those since, since I was a kid. And then when I talking to Steve Wolf about it, because I figured with Steve Wolf's genius, we could get this done. And I'd just seen a few pictures of the R2, one looking down from a balcony, it looks like a football. And I thought that's the coolest thing, but I don't think it'd fly. <laughs> but Steve suggested that we build the R2 because somebody already built the Z model. Turner had already built the Z model. So, okay, same engine. So that's what we set out to do. Yeah, pretty awesome. I remember interviewing all these old guys about the history and and now we're the old guys. <laughs> well, well this this whole idea for the podcast kind of came along from dinner one night with some friends and we were talking, we were telling I was telling stories, you know, and and he he said, "Is anybody writing all this shit down?" and I, and I said, "No." And I said, "But Katie had the idea for a podcast and we just to talk about some of the projects that we worked on." And some of the cool people that you know we've we've come to know, and uh, you know, so our friends pretty much encourage us to to go ahead and do it. So that's why we decided to do it, so we can actually record a little bit of this stuff. Yeah, they were tired of hearing Kevin ramble on yeah, at dinner, and they're just like, "Have him talking to a microphone." <laughs> <laughs> you want a second opinion, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so then you guys finished the R two. When did you start building it? Because you finished it in 91, right? Um, I started building parts in like the 1990, I think. I started gathering information on my own about 1990. Okay. And Steve got involved in 91. We built it during the year of 1991, actually. Started January of 1991 in Steve's shop. And I built stuff prior to that, stuff that a simple guy could build. But I certainly wasn't capable of building the GB by myself. And when he got involved, and then we had three other guys that were involved that were really spectacular. Jim McAllister was a good welder, and he, he pretty much spent all his time welding up the all the parts, a lot of welding in the GB. Mm-hmm. And then we had Dwayne Trappen, who was a wood guy, everything, but he was good with the wood. And then Steve had a lot of other projects, but the GB took first first place, and so we hammered away at it. It was pretty intense. That's pretty much what I did for a year. Wow. Yeah, so you guys just dedicated to it full-time with the, with yeah. the crew of the five of you and just banged it out. Well, actually, Steve Steve had other projects. He had an airplane in there, Jim Franklin's airplane and a Staggerwing Beach. He had a lot of stuff going on, but he just kind of pushed it back. He got excited about the GB. I call it uh, Entheos. 
in the uh, a Greek word that comes from enthusiasm, and that's what got the GB built. Was we got in, we got enthused about building it, and everybody was fired up that was working on it. That's why it got done in yeah. a year. I'm not the kind of guy that could go on building a GB for 12 years. I'd sweep the parts <laughs> in the back of the shop and do something that was easier. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so but it's the genius of Steve Wolf that that got that GB built. Steve is a, is a special talent, no doubt. He really is a good, and he's a good, great guy, which um, it was it was good to see you, both of you guys, you know, uh, a couple months ago, I guess it is now, when you guys stopped by for a visit. That was pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, what, what Steve is doing right now is a pretty good testimony. He, he's got a friend that flew a P-47. Wow, let's build one of those, and he's, flying around behind this round engine and and i thought he was nuts but then he well he worked in the rv factory for a little bit and he knows a lot of guys that built rv and he gets the plans and scratches some stuff up on paper and boom he's got a p47 in his yeah, shop yeah it's, it's amazing yeah, it's really cool. he's an amazing guy and he's one of the old guys still. <laughs> yeah yeah good guy well and and Delmar, you said you spent 1,500 hours in the R2. I can't really imagine spending 1,500 hours doing really anything. What's it like to spend that much time in cockpit of a GB? Most of the time, you're just sitting in there. <laughs> and, and you're freezing to death. Most of the time, I'm sitting in there freezing to death. Hypoxic, because flying over weather. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, but in the to... previous, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, in the previous episodes, Dad had mentioned that it was incredibly hot in the Z. For like, why was it? Is just ex... like the engine was uh, it just. Was, it was kind... June. I forget why it was. <laughs> the middle of June in the middle of the afternoon in, oh, in okay. Florida, <laughs> and it was 105 degrees sitting in the shade. So it was just miserably hot that day. The weather was hot. Yeah. Well, wasn't there, there was something no about the system. way that, like, there was like no the environmental way... system in the, in that GB. If you're sitting for 20 minutes on the end of the runway at Sun and Fun, the thermometer in there is about 140. Yeah. Oh, and wow. then if you're flying cross country across the Rockies in Colorado, it's about 16 below in there. So I can't say that oh. it's a fun <laughs> job. Wow. And and a lot of that time that you flew yeah, the GBZ's yeah, it was because you were zigzagging back and forth across the entire country and as well as you you shipped it to Europe and flew it overseas too. So there's a lot of time where you were having to, to trans, transport yourself and the airplane from show to show to show. And that's that's those times you're talking about there. Yes, I I never climbed in that GB and flew it for fun ever. I was headed to a show. Yeah. I was headed someplace to a show to make some money every time I got into it. It wasn't an airplane that you go out and recreate in. I, I never had the urge to go get in and fly around. Never. It was a, it was a job. I had to do. Well, and with, um, like, with everything you're saying, I can kind of now understand why a lot of the times they'll just cart around the airplanes on like in trailers and stuff like that you know you kind of i do, would not want to fly in any of those conditions <laughs> be like put it on a truck i'll meet you at the airport 
but in, in real life, you you can't really take the GB apart and get from um, Hillsboro, Oregon to um, to New York, taking it apart and driving it. You can't make it. So it was kind of a necessity to dr- to fly the thing just for time. Yeah. We, we did 20, 20 shows, average 20 shows a year. Wow. 50 performances usually wow. in a year. That's a lot. That's pretty, pretty heavy yeah. schedule. Plus, I was farming full-time, too, in Montana. <laughs> in our, wow. So there was times when I, I I would try to fly early in the show. Like on Sunday, i try to fly early, so I was 11 o'clock or noon or 1 o'clock, and I'd fly from the East Coast back to Montana and I remember during harvest one year I get home and the custom cutters were sitting in my yard this is at midnight I, I flew across the country drive home and there's custom cutters sitting full of wheat got to unload this wheat so I had to go clean a grain bin and unload six trucks that night after I flew across the United States wow. in a GB. <laughs> so it wasn't easy yeah yeah wow but that's that's the you know the drive and a good example of how much drive you have as a as a person and a pilot performer, everything else that you know, there's a mission that needs to be done and you do it, and that's that's pretty impressive. And then well, let's talk about the mission of uh, of doing the test flights on the Z, that um, that warm summer in in uh, Florida that that year. <laughs> it was hot. It was hot as <laughs> hell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you, was you were the guy that was crazy enough to get in there. Yeah, I remember walking into the hangar that morning, and, and it's like going to a funeral. Everybody was <laughs> walking around and pale, like they're going to watch a disaster. And it's the it was the most exciting flight that I ever did in my wow. life, flying that GBC. Spectacular airplane. Yeah, it was... It was one of those things that we... The most spectacular airplane that I've ever flown, actually. Wow. I, that's thank, that's, wow. A, that's quite an honor coming from you. Yeah. High praise. Thank you. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I can remember that day, and and, and then we have the video that we put up on, on YouTube now from the, from, uh, the flights and how, how nervous I was and, you know, pacing around, wearing a hole in the, in the concrete, walking around in circles. And, and, but I can remember that when... Finally, when that Bonanza finally landed out of his 27-mile final and got out of the way, and then you were you could finally take off. I in in my mind, I still see as you went by on that first pass because we were down about mid runway on the side of the runway, and just seeing your face as you went by, I, instantly I knew it was it was okay. Everything was it was good. It's probably smiling. Yeah, exactly. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a it was a cool moment for sure. As hot as it was. So what were you feeling before you like how were you feeling you you got in there, you know, you get you know, dad puts the canopy on there, you're locked in and you you get down you're about to take off. Like what's running through your mind? I mean, are you are you excited or are you mentally crapping your pants? Like what's what was going through your head? No, I was so calm that I could have fallen asleep, but I was excited <laughs> to learn how the... So I, before I flew the, the R2, 
you you look at the airplane, you think about the aerodynamics, and you test fly the thing in your head, the computer between your ears. And I did that with the Z model, <laughs> and I had a lot of experience in the R2. So, and I thought it was going to be a really cool airplane. Had the same horsepower, was 300 pounds lighter, and that nice fat airfoil on it. And as soon as I opened the throttle, I knew that it was just a, going to be a spectacular flight, and it was hard to stop. <laughs> when you're when you're doing the test flight, you're supposed to go out and do a test flight and then come back and the me- mechanics check stuff. And I just couldn't stop, and I took off. <laughs> I, I remember you landed and you came back, and I think you were trying to tell me the oil temperature was high, but I didn't know what you were saying, and I just waved to you and around you went, zoop, back out again. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, I, that headset I had couldn't couldn't really hear anything or talk, so I thought, man, we'll just go fly the airplane. It's still working. Right. Right. It's really fun to fly. <laughs> and then we had a, it was a little bit, I think, left wing heavy, uh, one way or the other. And then we came back and we made an adjustment and made it exactly that amount, wing heavy in the other direction, and then came back and made another tweak. So, you know, really it was pretty close to being in rig, you know, straight away. We just half a turn off on the wire, pretty close. But, yeah, I, I really didn't care how it's rigged. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you got that stick in there to fix whatever's going on. You only need a rigged if you're sitting there with your arms right. crossed. And in the R2, if you're sitting there with your arms crossed, you're going to die in about 30 seconds. Wow. Yeah. wow. So the, the GB, the R2 was actually divergent. And you take your feet off the rudder pedals and it would start this oscillation in yaw back and forth. And about five it would accelerate too in amplitude and about five oscillations and it would knock you out. It was brutal. Like being wow. hit with a baseball bat. So it's, it's like riding a bike. You learn how to keep your feet going and you just keep it straight all the time. Yeah. Going cross country, yeah. you didn't think about it. But a couple of times I remember it's, this isn't that bad. Take your feet off for just a microsecond and it just starts beating you to death. Wow. wow. So it was divergent in yaw. Delmar didn't care. But it, you, that's what the pilot. But you said. didn't feel any of that yeah. in the Z. Then it didn't have that, or did you try it? There's none of that in okay. the Z. Z was stable as a Citadel. <laughs> wow. I remember your comment of of, of stalling and was that it, just saying because that, of... you know, you're because we were all remember before you flew it, we're all taking bets on what the stall speed's going to be, and we were all pretty shocked that it was you know the indicated stall speed was was lower than what any one of us had guessed. Um, yeah. and then, but you mentioned that it was, you know, just kind of hanging there and then the headrest hits you in the back of the head and you're looking at the center of the earth. Yeah. All the GBs <laughs> were kind of that way. You're doing the stall testing and it's like you drove off of a cliff. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> like you drove your car off of a cliff. Yeah. I, and then the, go well, ahead. and with all of this stuff, uh, like Delmar, you're saying with the Z, like, oh, you know, Pretty much all of it was kind of on the dot. Dad, for you, was that just, I don't know, shot in the dark? Like, hey, okay, yeah, we did. Or, like, what did you do to get it to be that close to good Well, you know, we, on the first flight? We, you know, we, we, we used all the information that we had available, um, which there wasn't a, a ton. There weren't any drawings to speak of. and But we had a, a lot of engineering documentation that was on some papers that were presented um, to SAE and some other organizations and some articles that had some technical data. 
So, and we knew enough about the airfoil because it's it's on some of the early pit specials on Great Lakes and a lot of different airplanes. We knew exactly how that how the the airplane should balance on that airfoil. So we knew a lot of that. Um, we had the benefit of Delmar flying his airplane and having you know kind of a more extreme condition than what we were going to have with this one. So that was good. Um, so pretty much just use standard you know, aircraft layout and design and balance techniques to make sure it, it, uh, was where it ought to be. And then we put good brakes on it. We put a World War II vintage engine and propeller yeah. on it for reliability. And we just made sure that the weight and balance was good. Um, structurally everything was what it was supposed to be. And then, you know, there you go. We, you know, one of our goals was to, to really find out what the air, the, the airplane flew like. In the, in the configuration aerodynamically of what the Granville brothers built. We didn't want to build a home built that kind of was, you know, resembled the shape of a GB, put a GB paint job on it and say, hey, look what we did. Because, you know, that, that would be finding out something different. That would be finding out what that new design uh, was like, not, not what this particular design was like. So um, that's really what we did. We just kind of paid attention to things to use the... And I'd say the the biggest thing on the stability, the the CG was pretty far forward in the Z model, and it was aft. It was like 26% in the R2 the first time I flew it. That's dangerous. And the, the R2 was maybe, or the Z model was maybe a little too far forward, but it made it really stable. Uh, coming down just before you touch down, slowing down, you ran out of elevator on the Z model. So it was a, a far forward CG. Yeah. The opposite of the R2, which made the the R2 unstable and the Z yeah. stable. And that's something that, uh, you know, with subsequent flights, we could have moved some things around and, and kind of got the CG to the sweet spot. Um, you know, it, it definitely was, you know, on the, the conservative side for sure, being forward. So, my first flight in the R2 was, it was divergent in yaw, and I discovered that before I ever took off. And I got stuck in it and couldn't stop. And then it was 26% CG, uh, um, of the cord. So it was at really aft CG. And so it was um, divergent in pitch also that I had to sort out really quickly. Yeah. yeah. So it, things could have gone bad really quickly. But the Z model, everything was cool. So it was easy. When you. <laughs> So you said you were running out of elevator. Were you running out of elevator when you're wheel landing or trying to three point? When you're getting down really slow, you just you hit the stop on the elevator. Okay. And, and by really slow in a GB, we're talking like 110. 100. A uh, hundred was approach in the Z model, and I used 120 in the okay. R2. Okay. Slow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah when, you're, when you're standing mid, 100 seemed really slow. When, you, when you're standing midfield and you see you coming in with with either airplane, um, and and you know the, the sink rate's just tremendous. You don't really get a sense of of yeah. how how the distance is is uh, you know getting short, less and less as you're coming towards us on a horizontal. But the vertical dimension was was tremendous to watch. It just looked like it was coming out of the sky, just like a brick. like a brick. Like a chrome-plated manhole cover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, and Delmar, I don't think we ever we ever told you this, but my mom and I were probably definitely didn't. But my mom and I were at Costco one day. Don't worry, this will wrap back around. And I was uh, hanging out in the book section waiting for her to stop shopping. So I had a couple hours. And I was going through books and I saw the R2 on the cover of this book. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I ran over and the book was called, um, what was it, Dad? It was called like, the worst, like worst airplanes air, in the, the world. The worst airplane designs in history. Like yeah, like worst. And um, it it had the R2. And then in big, big letters, it said sewer pipe with wings. And that was like the the main cover. And we got it. And it was on our coffee table for like 10 or so years. I think it finally fell apart. But that was, I was like, oh, we got to get this for dad. This is just so funny. <laughs> it's like worst, worst airplane designs in history or something like that. Because it was never supposed to fly or... I forget the justification they had for it. That's a lot of those rumors that that went around after the bad luck. So. I figured it was because of the, like the bodies, the fuselage, so fat. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, it's just an odd looking airplane. But there, there are much weirder airplanes out there, <laughs> weirder looking airplanes that have flown as well. So it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, they got a true. book full right. of them. <laughs> So, um, yeah, any, any other little things you want to add, uh, Delmar? What are you doing now? What's, what, what keeps you guys busy and, and um, going on now? Well, I built a really cool house that, that I've been working on for like 10 years. So, <laughs> but we're just getting it finished so up. So you can work on a house for 10 years, but not a GB. That's a, yeah. Not a GB. <laughs> well, I, you don't have a choice when you you got to finish your house because you're walking around in it every yeah. day. One one thing you don't want to do is move into your house before it's finished because it's really hard. You can't go cutting up lumber in the corner when you're cooking dinner in the other <laughs> yeah. end. Yeah. Well, I guess you also don't want to fly a GB before it's finished either. <laughs> Have a no. good rule of thumb. <laughs> so, are you guys? Uh, yeah, we you, actually did. Fly you're back it. in Montana. Is that where you're at, or? Yes. Cool. Yes, we we moved off the peninsula and we're back in Montana. Okay. You know the people on the Yellowstone Ranch in Montana? No. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That was a joke. Uh, what's that show called? Yellowstone. Uh, oh, Yellowstone. Yeah. <laughs> TV series she's talking about. Well, kids, are there any other questions you have or things you want to talk about before we wrap up for the night? When you had to fly across country in the GBs, what'd you do if you had to go to the bathroom? <laughs> and if you uh, wanted snacks, snacks and bathroom breaks. Well, the the GB is kind of unstable, so you weren't messing around with a with your John or anything. So you just held it, and my my bladder would get big as a football. And I remember stopping in. Um, North Dakota, I you're flying high, and it's worse when you're cold, and your bladder's so big and hard. And I flew uh, um, someplace in North Dakota. I stopped and slid to a stop and climbed out of the GB without shutting it off, and pissed for 20 minutes. It seems like. And most every stop is you, you pull into the gas pumps and you 
get up, climb out that door and head for the bathroom. <laughs> and for food, I, I carried a big gulp Pepsi, like a 7-Eleven big gulp. And it, it said on the, like Homer Simpson on the, on the door frame, you could set it there and it would stay right there. I was going to ask, so, was like, you got any cup holders on that thing? Or <laughs> Didn't need a cup holder. You could set it on the door jam there, and it would stay there. Wow. Except I remember one time I was returning to to Steve Wolf's place, and I did a roll for him after I was flying across country. I had all my baggage <laughs> in there and my Pepsi. And I'm, I'm driving up there, and um, uh, Jaeger... Chuck Yeager's kid was a friend of Steve Wolf's there, and he said, Delmar's pissing his pants because this Pepsi was running out because I did a roll. I forgot about my Pepsi, and it was running out the door frame and down the belly. <laughs> oh, man. So that would be my first concern when any cross-country flight. Like, where are the snacks, and how long do I have to hold it to go to the bathroom? <laughs> It's well, usually how long your concern was that uh, uh, we just I got GPS back then and it was pretty cool. But I I remember taking off and coming back from an air an air show in Alaska. I stopped in Northway, Alaska to get gas and this big cloud rolled over me. It was a forest fire. It was the chicken forest fire. And I was stuck there for six days. And every day I'd take off and. You lose visibility as soon as you got very high. So I tried it every day for six years, and on or six six days it seemed like six years. And on the sixth day, yeah. I popped out through the top of the smoke, and then everything was white. And I was committed because I I couldn't. I was blind looking down. It was like being in a yeah. snowstorm, or on top of a snowstorm. And so I dialed in um, White Horse in the GPS and it was 300 miles and that's a, about the as far as you want to go in the GB on the fuel and I got about halfway across there and the smoke got higher and higher and I was above 18,000 feet and no horsepower no wing area I'm just dragging through the air and the GPS clicked off and it never came back and there was I was on this sea of white so I I put a dot on my canopy and kept the sun there, in that dot. And I I flew out the 300 miles, what I thought the time passed, and five miles out of Whitehorse, boom! I the smoke cleared and I saw it. So that was certain death if I if I hadn't if I got off course. There's nothing there for hundreds of miles. If I hadn't been on course, and it hadn't cleared up. I would have died that day, and the bears would have eaten me what was left. Jeez. Yeah, sometimes so it just works. Kind of how the cross-country trips were in the GB. So not exactly a relaxing vacation. Definitely stressful no. job. <laughs> no, you didn't relax. Never relaxed in the GB. But I, I remember just one one more real quickie was that you came to Sun and Fun one year, I don't know if it was the second or third year. And um, and you had to crack it cracked a big gas tank, and then so you went somewhere along the route, and then you started using a small tank and made a bunch of stops, bunch of stops, and then you and I pulled the tank out one day, brought it up to our shop, and we fixed it, brought it back down there, and put it back together. 
Yeah, you know, I remember I that flight was... distinctly because I, I flew into Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and the, I went 500 miles on that leg. It's the longest leg that I've ever gone, and it got dark on me, and I had no lights. I had no navigation lights. I had no cockpit lights, except my GPS had a light in it. So I'd push the light to see where I'm going, and then I'd lose my, lose my night vision. And then it would it'd take quite a while before your night vision would come back so you could see where you're going. And I downwind at Pine Bluff. I remember I, I pulled back the – it's the only time I flew it at night, really. So I pulled back the power, and flames come out of the pipes that I never saw before, <laughs> like two feet. And I thought that was so cool. And so I kept doing it a lot as I was going downwind and on approach. Let's and do then that I, again. I landed and I pulled up to the pumps and I getting out of the belts and everything and I stepped out splish splash into gasoline. And there was a I was sitting in a puddle of gasoline about the size of the airplane, like twenty foot in diameter. And that had just run out of that big tank. So I'm not sure why the those two foot flames didn't ignite that fuel, but they didn't. And then I was, I made that, I made that leg 500 miles, and then I made five stops to go from Pine Bluff to Sun and Fun. I think five stops because I only had my that little 25, that 25 gallon fuel tank. So and the thing full power burns 60 gallons an hour, so I got to be kind of careful. And I remember going into um, one of those places, maybe Mississippi. I'd gotten to, and I was looking at my GPS and figuring out I can, I can, I was only going like a hundred, 170 miles. And I was thinking I can make it to the next, to the next airport. And there was a 210 on final in front of me and he ran out of gas and landed like two miles from the runway. And so I'm thinking, uh, let's see now we better land now. So he might've saved my life by running out of gas because I probably would have done the same thing trying to stretch my, stretch my legs. How long between uh, Phillips did you do in the G, the, the Z normally? Like what kind of time? About about three hours is what I planned. Okay. And but you get up high and get good tailwinds, tailwinds. Then there's usually go three hundred miles is what I planned, but keep it to three three hours whatever yeah but there's a few times i I would always run that big tank empty and then go back to the the 25 gallon tank for when i'm landing but i remember going into cleveland ohio and i forgot to switch back and i was down maybe getting close to to the cleveland airport and the engine quit and I was down in the treetops. It seemed like 20 minutes to get that, to get the, it's like you're swimming in glue. To first, you got to figure out what happened. You forgot to switch, switch it to the next tank. And, and you got to get the pumps going because it's got no fuel and just the propeller turning it. And you're slowing down over the treetops, get your adrenaline going <laughs> and remind you not to do that again. <laughs> Well, and I think one thing we learned today was that GBs are for speed, not comfort um, when it comes to flight. <laughs> you know, they're there for racing in the 30s, not for skipping around the states in the 2000s. 
Yeah, if you want comfort, you you buy a Cessna or a jet pack <laughs> or something. So you did fifteen hundred hours on the same engine, or did you have to do another engine? Overhauled the engine at about seven hundred, I think, seven hundred or seven fifty. And the when they overhauled it, I guess the crankshaft in a nine eighty five is two parts bolted together, and it it appears that they just weren't bolted together perfectly and that engine shook after i overhauled it but it was terrifying i never wore a parachute before that but it shook a little bit and that wears on your that wears on your mind after sitting in there i started wearing a parachute because i thought the thing was going to come apart any minute but i had these i had 20 air shows booked so i had to keep flying it and then i took it took it down to and got it they they went through it again and they got rid of that shake. It was it was just how they how they put those two pieces of the crankshaft together, which is kind of disconcerting. I, I like that engine. I like to not know anything that's going on inside of that engine. You just trust it, blind trust, and you don't think about all those parts moving inside. Yeah, it. yeah, definitely. <laughs> but that's hard to do after you're thinking about every part inside of it after when it's shaking. You're trying to figure out what's going wrong every minute. All right. Well, Kate, is that a good time to wrap it up and call it a night? Yeah. Oh, featuring Roscoe. Did you hear that? Yeah. I will be keeping that in the episode. Roscoe seems to be tired. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for chatting with us, Delmar. I didn't realize how um, how truly horrible flying a GB sounds. I mean, it sounds fun, but just in terms of, yeah, I, I no. <laughs> so that was interesting was to a, learn. <laughs> it was a whole different environment that, that I got I got used to all that. And I remember I'd land in Shelby and I had a I had my Corvette in the hangar and I'd trade out the G B and get in the Corvette and driving home at night and I'd look down, I'm going hundred and twenty because that's as slow <laughs> as you want to go on the G B and that's what felt comfortable. And actually Whoops. during those years in Montana we didn't have a speed limit. So it was like heaven driving around in a Corvette. Set <laughs> yeah. the cruise control on 113. It was very wow. relaxing. <laughs> well, thanks so much for chatting with us and being more of a cautionary tale in terms of flying GBs than, you know, than, oh, you know, it was amazing, but there was a lot of, you know, a lot of not so comfortable things that you had to do for it. <laughs> um, well, hopefully we can have you on here again because, you know, you've flown so many amazing things and we'd love to chat with you again. Okay. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Yep. See you later. All right. Take care. Thanks, everybody. And Bye. we hope you Thank guys you. have a great night. Okay. Thanks a lot. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.